Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you are new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor looking for the smartest home for my cash. If you are the same, I think you're going to like what we do here. My guest today is Harry Dent, best-selling financial author, newsletter writer, and macro economist and analyst. And today we got into a handful of things, including uh, Harry's prediction for a market crash in 2023. And then we went into his outlook for a handful of emerging nations, starting with China, looking at their urbanization trajectory and their demographics and making some predictions about how that's going to impact their growth story, or I should say, maybe lack of one, and then applied those same rules to a handful of other emerging and developed countries. So really fascinating conversation today. I enjoyed this very much. As always, I want to shout out my Substack. So I publish a weekly Substack every Sunday where I go deep into the psychology of decision making, which is at the core of every investor's performance. We can talk about managing money. I prefer to talk about managing my mind, which is the most important tool in every investor's tool belt. And the reason we either win or find ourselves in trouble, we become trapped by our own biases, heuristics, and blind spots. So I jump into the psychology of decision making and uh, behavioral economics to interpret my thoughts better and my intuitive responses to things I'm seeing in the market. Trust me, this has kept me out of trouble many, many times and put me in the right place at the right time. I'd love you to join over 40,000 investors who hear from me every Sunday when we jump into these very important topics on my Substack. There's a link right beneath this piece of content where you can sign up and, uh, and join the crew. All right, here is Harry Dent. Enjoy. All right, here I am once again with Harry Dent. Harry, it's great to see you and thanks for making the time. Yeah, nice to be back, Jay. So let's start with this question for you. What is the likelihood of a U.S. market crash in 2023? Well, you know, I, I think it's very high now and, and it should be coming uh, sooner, not later. So just to review, we finally did have that first crash in 2022, it was it was late November peak for Nasdaq. A little bit before that for the Russell. But in fact, a number of markets peaked literally Jay around the world in succession. And the last one was the S and P 500 on January 4th, right at the beginning uh, of 2022. So that was a very meaningful top. And then, but I also looked and I had to analyze Jay all throughout history of the stock markets. What does it say to what does it take to say a bubble's finally over? And you really need a 30 to 50 percent first crash. And so that is what we got in 2022. But that is the first crash. So if this is what I think it is, that the ending of the second major stock bubble and the second major real estate bubble, of which we've never seen two major bubbles this close together in a row before in all of history. So so the first one was a natural bubble with strong demographics and, and you know, consumers and investors feeling great, you know, kind of like the roaring 20s bubble. But the second one was 100% artificial, all, you know, $10 trillion of money printing and fiscal stimulus over two years. And we're still feeling that stimulus a bit, but they were forced to tighten. And so I think that's why this is not going to last long. This balance should be very close to its end because now the tightening should start to hit over the next year and 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 this market does not deserve to be anywhere near the highs uh you know with, with the fundamental 
demographic trends, which I measure long term so well, at this lowest point, I, I, I was saying all the way back in the early years of my forecast in the 1980s, this boom would end 2007. We go into a long sideways market with the baby busters until late 2022 or so. And then we would have the millennial boom to follow. Well, we have still not corrected this bubble yet, this second bubble, this artificial one. And that, I think the next wave down is likely to be from about now into the end of this year. And then, the, then a final wave down in 2024, and then we should be done with this. Now, note, the natural time for all of this to happen would have been uh, on, on the decennial cycle and on my demographic cycles that we would have had a peak in more like early 2020 and then this crash into late 2022. That's what have been. But but with all this stimulus, I think they have basically pushed off the whole cycle for two years. So now we end up peaking in late 2021 in stocks and we'll end up bottoming mid to late 2024. So this is just and, and, and any major crash should have three surges down. So we saw that first one last year. This bounce has been longer than usual. The 1929 first bounce was only five months. This is going on eight months now. So this is really, really stretched. The next wave, if I'm right, and we're in this major crash of a lifetime and, and finally getting rid of this bubble for good, um, then this next crash will be take us to major new lows by late this year, early next year, and the whole thing will bottom somewhere between mid to late 2024. That's my scenario for now, and that has been put off by about two years from the natural scenario. We should have already, all of my cycles pointed all the way back to the lowest point for stocks around late 2022 last year. This stimulus has simply pushed that off. Now, so, so to me, we have a war to see who's stronger. Is the natural economy ultimately stronger or is there is there central banks? And I'm betting that the natural economy is going to win here, frankly, because the central banks went so far. I think their big mistake, Jay, they didn't have to overreact so strongly to COVID. It's a natural crisis. Nobody would have been surprised if the economy slowed because everybody was sick and not spending as much and staying right. home. That would, no, they had no they had to go stimulate harder than ever. $10 trillion of stimulus in two years, higher than any time in all of history. And now inflation suddenly goes from 1% to 9%. And now they have to tighten. And you know what? They, the market's still saying they haven't tightened enough. And they probably have to go, as, as expected, at least another 50 basis points. This will be the strongest tightening since the early 80s. And I say the economy is not going to handle it well, that it's an illusion that the economy is strong. The economy's only been strong because of unprecedented COVID stimulus, which they overdid beyond any imagination. And when this thing falls, there will not be a soft landing. It will be a hard landing. So that's what I'm betting on. But the proof of that pudding should come in the second half of this year, and it should come soon, or maybe we're more in a kind of a uh, 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 confused sideways market. I mean, I, and the markets to me always know where they're going. They just want to leave most people in the dust and, and the smart money makes the most gain. I think even the markets don't know what sides up after so much stimulus and so much artificial impact from central banks. I think even the markets aren't really clear. But, but again, proof of the pudding would be another strong 
downturn starting somewhere soon. If it yes. doesn't start in the next month or two, I'm going to have to revise my forecast. And if that happens, that should not that should be most of the damage, but there'll still should be one more wave down in 2024 before this is over. So this is not smooth sledding ahead for stocks. And this correction, I say, is not over. It's just begun. Okay. And so for context, today is July 12th for anybody watching. Canada just increased their rates by 25 basis points this morning. So you're expecting the US to go up by maybe 50 basis points in two weeks. Yeah, and that, that's pretty much expected on Wall Street now that they need another yeah. one minimum and probably two 25 basis points hikes. And you got to remember what, what people miss about this. And this is what's really confusing, especially right now. We're everything happens on a lag, all this stimulus. So yep. this this 10 trillion in stimulus is still hitting now, but it should hit fully by the end of this year, 100 percent fully. And then that stimulus is gone. And then this new tightening, which started in March of last year and has continued clearly until May and looks like it will continue probably into the summer, another two hikes. That stimulus, that that tightening is going to hit for a year after that, roughly. So yeah. well into 2024. So 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 we're just at the peak of the stimulus hitting, and this was massive stimulus. So no surprise the economy's held up well, but I think there's going to be a sharp reversal soon. And now the tightening's going to hit, and, and the stimulus will have worn off soon. And then we have nothing but the tightening hitting until at least uh late summer of 2024. And that's about when I would expect a bottom. Okay. Okay. Now I've heard you say, uh, make, make two statements in recent interviews, one of which is that the hype around China's growth story supplanting the United States as the number one economy in the world is massively overblown and misunderstood on the heels of a demographic crisis. Um, as you put it, you know, China didn't stimulate with cash. They stimulated with condos. There's 22% vacancy in the country. I believe they built for 80% yeah. urbanization. 22% empty homes and condos. No economy in the world has ever had that. And no economy could survive that without top-down central planning and government support of the country. The, the, basically, the Chinese government has told developers, just build and we'll cover your ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what they've done. Now, there's a point where you can't do that when there's just so much empty. And then growth is finally slowing with China. People think... Oh, China, India, all these Asian countries, they're going to grow forever. India, yes. China, no. China, demographically, like I measure for every country in the world, developed and emerging, China literally peaked in 2011. They've already seen the highest demographic surge in spending naturally they would ever see. It's all stimulus other than that. And they go down, down forever. So Japan is simply a leading indicator. And I've been saying this for decades. Japan was the first major developed country to peak because of demographics peaking. I mean, in forever. Their demographics never get back to where they were. They peaked in 1996. Their bubble peaked in 89 for stocks and 91 for real estate, just like our first tech bubble peaked in 2000, ahead of the 2007 demographic peak. And real estate peak just have that. So, so, so they're in a long-term decline. China is the only emerging country and the largest one until India gets bigger and stronger. The largest one in the world, and they are done. They're the only emerging country that has 
falling demographic growth for as far as I can see for decades in the future. So they don't recover from this. And 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 they have 22% empty homes. So after getting from 20% to 60% urban, and that's the biggest thing emerging countries do. Demographics is second to urbanization because every urban person has three times the spending power as a rural in, in these emerging countries. Okay, so moving people to cities is more powerful than even them going from their 20s to their 40s and naturally higher spending. So, so that's what China's done, but China overdid it. China's government, the only way since they're not elected, they keep their people happy and not worrying about a top-down authoritarian government, which doesn't survive in most wealthy countries anymore, is to keep the economy growing. So that's what they did. And they did it by creating 22% empty houses. And that is death. If we had 22% empty homes in the United States, we would have a deflationary spiral that would last for a decade or two. You know, right. uh, and any other country would. And that's what I think is going to happen to China. China's going to fall hard when they fall and there's no coming out of it. I, even even when China crashes and real estate bottoms, maybe 50, 60 percent lower and stocks 70, 80 percent lower. I still wouldn't be a big buyer there because they have nowhere to grow because they can they, the rest of the they're 60 percent urban. And to get to more normal 80 percent maturity. They've already built all those homes already. They're already empty right. waiting. They don't have yeah, to yeah. build another home ever. How is China ever going to grow strongly again? And my answer is never. They're done, just like Japan. Japan will never see new highs in the stock market. Uh, I said that back then after the 1989 highs and 91. And, and China will, will never see new highs in real estate or stocks again. And everybody thinks China is going to become the number one country in the world. They're going to be number two for a long time, but they are not going to overtake the United States. Yeah, it's it's interesting thinking through that ghost city crisis that, you know, and, and you know how, how well I understand. I don't know how much I can trust the data. You, you know, you read reports about this sort of shoddy infrastructure. These weren't built necessarily to be condos. They were built as stimulus, as you said. So are they super livable? Well, are they livable 10 years down the road? Should they somehow find a way to reach 80%? Are they in the right places since they built? What if people right. really start moving to some other places and they and they, they have these empty condos in the places the government instead of the markets chose to build them? Just to stimulate. Point. I mean, this thing is the biggest mess in history, and, and tell you, Jay, what I love about it, it's going to prove, finally, without a shadow of doubt, that free market capitalism, despite its extremes and problems, is way better than central planning of economies. Sure. China is the last one to fall for that, and its people to fall for that. And the government had, as I said earlier, had to overdo it just to get people to shut up about it, not worry about it. When this thing falls, imagine people are going to be just... They're going to be so pissed at their government, they're not going to be able to see straight. These people, unlike the U.S., where 35% of our net worth approximately is in real estate, you know what is in China? 75%. For real. And they wow. have a, they're going to fall 50 to 60% when we fall 30 to 40 here or so. And it's going to be devastating. And, and a lot of Chinese people... Everyday people, not rich people, have a second or third home, and it's not even rented out. It's empty. They, yeah. they don't. They're not renters, and they don't rent out real estate. So they're buying second and third homes for speculation. Oh, yeah. This is this is. Uh, I would not want to be in China uh, in the next ten years. Uh, no. Just it's going to be a disaster. 
I'm trying to remember the stat right now. I don't know if you would know it. The percentage of uh, so 75% of net worth in China is tied up in real estate. That's pretty mind blowing. Do you have any idea what percent of net worth in the U.S. is tied up in the stock market? In in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, not as much because because wealthy people buy stocks a lot more though. Although everyday people have moved in, that's that's one of the problems that the uh, you can see that the dumb money has been more buying into stocks uh, in in the late state. They did that in the two thousand. They did that again here in the last year. So so more people are getting in that. But but I can tell you one thing. There's no question about it. If you look at history, a real estate crash is much more damaging to the everyday person than a stock crash. Yeah. Because everybody well, that can possibly get a loan owns real estate. And, and most people don't, the rich, the wealthier people have more of their money in private equity and stocks and things like that rather than real estate. So the everyday person is much more exposed in their net worth to real estate. Yeah. That's for sure. You know, the, the number I was trying to recall was it was like percent as a as a percent of the United States population, how many people own equities. And in the 20s, it was it was like a single digit, I believe, you know, it was very, very low. Uh, so that crash, you know, occurred. But, you know, as, as in terms of like direct implications of a stock market crash, it was a very small percent of the population. Now, the trickle down effects were large. Uh, but today, you know, obviously we're upwards of 60%, I believe Americans own equities far, far, far greater. So, okay. So I want to, I want to stay with Asia for a minute because, you know, you look at demographics at quite a deep level, where are you seeing upside? Because it's kind of like the world right now, it seems enveloped in this demographic crisis. Yeah. Some countries are leading the way. Japan's got it super rough. China's not far behind. U.S. is maybe, you know, 20, 40 years behind them though, moving the same direction. Uh, what about India? Harry, what do you, are you optimistic? Yeah, yeah. About? I mean, there's, there's two things about demographics. There is the spending wave, which I can tell in any country in the world, emerging or developed. Okay. But the second difference is there are countries that in the emerging world, as they urbanize, certain countries' economies are more powerful. They just are. There's more gains in GDP per capita for every 1% urban gain than there is in other countries. Okay. Okay. And, and and I've said something astounding for a while, and Indian economists would disagree with me on that, that India will ultimately be as rich or richer than China. They're simply far less urban. Okay. If you look at it, it where they are on the urbanization curve, they are richer at their 20, whatever, 28% urban than China was at the same point, which means they could be as rich or richer than China. And I have literally, I have you know, Chinese economists, I mean, Indian economists say there's no way India will ever be as rich as China. I'm like, no, I think, first of all, the demographics stay high. They're going to peak about 1.7 billion population in India. China has already peaked at 1.4 billion and will actually in the next 50 years shrink, projected to shrink to less than 800 million. They're going to lose 30, 40 percent of their population. So, so China is going to be the most dramatic story of instant success, overstimulation in, 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 a, in a large country with huge urbanization potential, which overdid it. And then the fall of China is going to be the most dramatic in history. Uh, India is going to become the next China. India is starting about where China was when they started to urbanize rapidly. India can learn from China's mistakes and see the cost of overbuilding and overdoing it. So they won't have to do that. And they'll have good reasons not to do that, even though 
people urged them to do it. So India really is the next big thing, India, Pakistan, and Southeast Asia. So, so, so what's really happening, Europe and America are plateauing long-term. I, I'd say the U.S. is basically plateauing as a major power and economy between the 2007 baby boom peak and the 2037 millennial peak in spending, okay? So we've come down from that, we'll come back up, but we'll never, the stocks adjusted for inflation probably will never get higher than we've seen, especially in this bubble, okay? We're plateauing, so is Europe. In Northern Europe, is more like the U.S. holding up well. Southern Europe is one of the worst in the world, okay? Southern Europe. Now, East Asia has been the fastest to rise. Japan, Korea, and now China. And they are going to be the fastest to fall. There's something about Asians, particularly East Asians, that when they get affluent, all affluent people have less kids when they get more affluent because they want those kids to be better educated, get in good college and do well. So having kids is counterproductive to smart, uh, affluent people. Well, Asia, Asia more so. So they've reacted more. They're, they're dropping births as they've gotten affluent. It's just been dramatic. So, so East Asia is going to be the biggest fall. East Asia and Southern Europe are going to be the biggest falling areas of the developed or near developed world in, in the coming decades. Um, and, and, and Southeast Asia first, and then India, uh, and eventually Pakistan are going to be the biggest risers. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the future. And, and North, Northern America, US and Canada hold up the best in the developed world and Northern Europe, like UK, France, and Scandinavia, and, and the rest, I mean, the rest of Europe and East Asia really are going to have huge falls and nobody is going to expect what happens to china nobody expected japan i was the only guy in 89 that said japan's done everybody's worshiping japan and saying the u.s is done no japan is done demographically and japan has done nothing but fall since and will never see new highs in stocks and had to overstimulate themselves just to get where they are today and they're going to fall hard but china is going to be the story biggest rise fastest rise since the 1980s over four decades and biggest fall over the next decade plus india is going to do the same thing i see india on a similar rise from into here this downturn say 2024 into at least it's at least 2055 before india starts to peak and kind of plateaus for a while into 2055 to 65 so india is going to be the next big thing like China, and it's going to eventually be richer and is richer, richer in GDP per capita and much larger population peaking eventually at 1.7 while China falls towards 800 million. That's that's a huge story that nobody's going to see till it happens. And it's already set in, in stone to me. That's already going to happen unless India unless China pulls a miracle, which is impossible, which they, oh, since they've overbuilt, or if India just totally becomes super socialistic and blows it. India yeah. would have to consciously blow it, not yeah. to be the next big thing. Okay, I, I would imagine one party that knows this would be the Chinese regime. They can look at the real estate vacancy, they can look at the slowing trend of urbanization, so the likelihood to fill that vacancy is low. They can look at the country's exposure to that real estate market. There's a whole bunch of things. And then as you pointed to, demographics currently suggest 
that the population is going to shrink by 40% over the next 50 years, um, which is hard to sort of grapple with in terms of like what. Until you look at Japan and see it's already been starting in Japan. So it does happen and it does it particularly happen in East Asia. They, oh, these oh, people yeah. do not, and they get wealthy, they just stop having kids right. more than anybody on earth. And there's, yes, yeah, some, some policy errors in China that, you know, definitely amplified that. Uh, but, yeah. you know, I would say if somebody does recognize this, it's probably the Chinese regime. They've got some time now, maybe, maybe not, to take some steps to try to ease this pressure, look for alternates. I mean, what are the strategies available to them? You, you think? Okay, like here's the problem. If they didn't see this earlier, okay, they just wanted to grow and they took the easiest way print condos instead of money. It is more powerful to build houses than to just print more money and hope people will spend it. And when you do print money, the, the impacts go more towards the affluent who own financial assets that it pumps up and not to the everyday. So China did do what would stimulate its economy the most, build houses for everyday people and build, build, build and employ people and all that sort of stuff. The problem is now that they realize that their demographics, because it wouldn't be hard to look at your demographics and see, they can look at the same projections I look at. These are not secrets. Now they would be kind. I don't think they would. Now they would be more conscious of it. What do they do? They already overbuilt enough houses to last forever. They don't need a single house unless people move to some new province that's vacant now, okay? They don't ever need to build another house in China to accommodate the rest of the people that will naturally urbanize at a, at a more natural growth rate over the next couple of decades, okay? Yep. So, so they're stuck. They overstimulated. And so what they'd have to do is say, well, the stupidest thing is build more house for that vacant. So they would have to get in a massive money printing campaign like the U.S. is doing. And that has not been their style thus far. And in fact, they're, again, their, their form of stimulus is more effective. But they've blown that. So I, I really think they don't have that much options. And to wildly start printing money right now would just be an even bigger uh, confession to the world that China's economy is in deep shit. I'm telling you, I, I talk to a lot of people, obviously. People don't see the China thing. It's clear as a bell if you look at the facts. People just, China's been growing. Everybody thinks, you know, first Japan and now China. They have the work ethic we don't have. They're doing the right things we're not doing. Their government supports the economy instead of overregulated, blah, 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 blah. They're doing the right thing. No, they've done the wrong freaking thing. And they've done it for decades now. Building empty houses couldn't be a more wrong thing to do long term to set up your economy for a fall. And that's to me. They can't. I don't see how they get out of this. Because they so overdid it, um, they would have to do something so drastic. It would look, it would reek of desperation. They would have to print trillions and trillions of dollars. And then, and then what are people going to do with it? They're not going to buy houses when house prices are starting to fall first in China and will fall the hardest when they fall. Nobody's going to buy houses when they start to go down. That's the one thing about housing. People will buy stocks when they go down, but people won't buy houses when they go down, you know, and 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 so and for a long time. So I think they have shot themselves in the foot and I don't see any easy way out for China. And, and the best thing they can do is kind of cushion everyday people, give them some sort of stimulus or liquidity when those people see their houses going down, they're going to clam up. 
These Chinese people are going to clam up when they see 75% of their net worth dropping like a rock. Again, this has already happened in the U.S., and it caused us to clam up, but nothing. We don't have the overvaluation degree nor the percentage of of, of uh, our net worths and real estate that China's double everything. So whatever we experienced after the first housing collapse, which was substantial, okay, took a long time for housing to go down and turn around and come back in the second bubble. And it wouldn't have done it without massive stimulus. Well, China, China just is in a hole. I don't see how you come out of. And I think the whole world is going to lose faith. Why would we invest in China when there's Southeast Asia, six, seven hundred million people there, and 1.4 million uh, billion going to 1.7 billion in India in, yeah. in the coming decade? So I think the world just shifts, and China, and China normally say, okay, prices go down. Well, people reinvest in China, not after a fall this severe, not after China blew it this bad. They blew it. And I, I think there's no, there, I hate to say it, they're going to hell and there's no coming back for a while. Mm. Okay. Okay. So then if we're looking at Southeast Asia, maybe South Asia, you're pointing to the same two items, which are the, uh, the, the trend of urbanization, but more importantly, I guess, where those countries are within that trajectory, you're saying India is maybe 20% urbanized. Is that what I what I heard? Yeah, yeah. They're they're like, I think, 28%. And 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 Thailand's like, you know, 60%. And then other parts of Southeast Asia is literally like Cambodia's 30%. So the countries that have there's there's kind of Thailand has much less urbanization potential. They're more like China. There are, you know, then does Cambodia and other Indonesia and yeah. countries like that. So so the countries with lower urbanization have the most potential to expand um, in the coming decades. And, and so I'd be investing. I'd, I'd rather invest in Indonesia stocks than Thailand stocks for that reason. Yeah. OK, that makes sense. You know, and, and I. <clears throat> I think through what other option would be on the table for any country in that demographic crisis. And, you know, Canada, I'm up in Canada and we're facing our own demographic crisis. We're far earlier in the path than maybe China or Japan, but we're on the same path. Um, I'm very curious how our immigration strategy is going to impact that. I mean, 2022, Canada let in half a million people. That's the game plan for 2023, you know, in a country of 39 million, let's just remind, you know, all my American viewers, we have the same amount of people as California but we're a larger landmass than the United States. You had a million people in two years on top of what's only 39 million. It's actually a massive jump and really impacts a lot of markets. Um, you know, I don't think that's on the table for China. I don't think you can really make a dent in your population by opening up uh, the doors, um, but but America could. And so what do you think in terms of the demographic crisis in the US? Is this a serious issue? Uh, will it materialize into some negative economic consequences, or what? Do you you know, I think that's going to be the topic for my my next newsletter in August. That okay. that Canada, I've just been actually looking at this. Right, Canada has a more favorable public opinion about immigration. The U.S. has been saying, "Oh, we're doing it too much. Less immigrants, less immigrants, less immigrants." Yeah, I'm like, this is death. This is the only reason that we're stronger than Europe and our other major competitors in the world is our Emma. We've always been an immigration magnet. And of course, so has been Canada. The difference is 
the the public opinion is more favorable or let's put it, Canadians are more aware of how important immigration is to them and they're more favorable towards it. So I feel better about the future in the coming decades uh. for Canada than the U.S. Uh, as long as they have that, as long as they're immigration. I really feel like when when this recession hits, America is just going to kind of have the tendency to pull back more on immigration. So yeah. I would hope Canada doesn't or they do to a lesser degree. I mean, you always pull back. I mean, everybody, citizens will always get more defensive when their own economy is slowing down because then they see the immigrants more as competitors rather than helpers. There's yeah. no question about it. Every developed country in the world should be fighting over the qualified immigrants around the world coming from the merging world. OK, that that is the because all the all developed countries are, are maturing and aging, all of them, just some fast and others. So I think that's Canada's advantage here. I think Canada will probably pull out of this downturn, weather it better and pull out better because they have they're more pro immigration. And, and of course, it is. Asian, particularly and Chinese in the past, that have most like to go. They 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 go to freaking Vancouver and Toronto. Yeah. Particularly yeah. Vancouver. And I would too. Yeah. Vancouver is yeah. my favorite city in North America. Of all hey. the cities in North America, yeah. I don't like the hazy, kind of foggy, cool weather, but overall, Vancouver, the size and quality of that city and beauty, yeah. um it, it, it's my favorite place, place to go in North yeah. America. Well, you Especially know, especially in the summer when the climate's perfect. Yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, and a, and a July day in Vancouver is a hard one to beat. I'm 40 minutes yeah. outside of the city, which is perfect. I'm, you know, very close to the metropolis, but I'm in a town of 20,000. It's like my ideal scenario. You know, all my viewers know I'm, I'm not a fan of our current administration, but I, I do look very positively on this uh, specific policy, which is to have let in, you know, a million immigrants over the last two years. It does rub certain people the wrong way, but you know, humans have migrated around the planet forever, right? I, I don't see any reason that we should impede that journey. I'm definitely for it. Um, you, you know, you made a comment about public uh, sentiment towards immigration being different in Canada and the U.S. And right away, I started to wonder how much of that is impacted by the fact that, um, you know, you're just going to have more illegal immigration in the United States just by nature of where your country's located. We don't have that. Exactly. Our yeah. borders make us prone to illegal immigration. You're right. No Which question. Would, would impact people's sentiment, I suppose, more so yeah. than in Canada. It's just not really an issue. It doesn't occur. Yeah, I, I agree. I think if we were getting more of the Asian immigrants that like that Canada's getting, the, the sentiment would, would already shift there. That That in, in what I know, the same thing, I do a lot of speaking in Australia, they get high immigration from Asia, too. The people there are not anti-immigrant. The immigrants coming in are as educated and affluent as the citizens. It's not like poor people jumping across illegally the border. You, you're right. That is going to create a more adverse relationship to immigration of who's coming in and how. More illegal and more lower education and income. And the you people coming into Canada and Australia and New Zealand are above average in, in my oh, yeah. experience, what I can see. Who's well, gonna and, who's gonna object to that? No, I, I completely agree. And and isn't that sort of the core of, of what was the American dream? It's leaving wherever you're from, cutting ties, making that journey to a new place in order to build a better life. And with that comes the spirit of entrepreneurship and ambition. And you know, 
those of us, I mean, I'll point to myself who were just born in, you know, Canada or the US, you're kind of born to a degree with a silver spoon in your mouth. You didn't work to get here. You were just the lottery, you know what I mean? And so that, that, that intrinsic motivation that you really, really gambled to put yourself here. And now you've got to go all in to make this work. Um, And I think one of the problems here, and it's just natural. I mean, it's not unexpected. The U.S. has become really probably the most self-sufficient large country in the world. Yeah, we trade with people, but but if all trade got caught up, we have so much variety of resources and and industry and services. So so I think it's natural that the United States would say after being the immigration magnet along with Canada, but the magnet of the world for so long is kind of like, well, we've overdone that or enough is enough. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's yeah. not true. If you're looking at what I'm looking at and you're looking at the future, which, again, is easily projectable, just people don't do it. No, if we don't continue to have immigration, we're going to be a no growth country. And so are a lot of countries already. Southern Europe's already no growth. East Asia's mostly no growth in the future or decline. Yeah. So 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 I just think, like I said earlier, I think the difference is I think Canadians have a, a, a slightly higher dependence and and, and and a benefit from immigration and they're more aware of it and and, and therefore see that it's a benefit. And, and again, I see why. If, if I pick 10 average people coming into Vancouver and 10 average people coming into El Paso, Texas, I think you'd see why why there's a different opinion of it. The <laughs> yeah, quality it. of the people coming into Canada is, and Australia, where I also lecture a lot, is just higher people don't have a oh we can't let any more of those dang immigrants in these immigrants are probably smarter than you of anything (laughs) you're saying oh my gosh we can't let these people in and people who come in illegally because you have like you say these borders you can't possibly protect totally there it's not going to be the same uh they come in and they and they have the poor people they have to hide so, so they don't even integrate as well. I mean, the whole thing is more difficult. So yes, Canada, Australia, New Zealand are the other, I call, you know, uh, English-based countries that have very favorable relationship to and should have continued high immigration. Australians aren't having any more babies, you know, native than than American or Canadian. They right. just have better, higher and higher quality immigration. The same for Canada. So that's why. I'd be more bullish on Canada coming out of this this uh, big shakeout, this final shakeout we need to have before we can go healthfully into the natural millennial boom, which should be from 2024 to 2037, a rising tide. Then it kind of stays high into the 2050s. But basically, all the last real, I, I, I think my next book is probably going to be called The Last Great American Boom. That'd be from 2024 to 30. The last strong surge in demographics. After that, it's flattened down forever, just like East Asia and just like Southern Europe. Those are forever. And you know, the, the, the country, the best demographics of the world is Africa. But Africa is still poor and not urbanizing and not doing it efficiently when they do and corruption. So that's why I like Southeast Asia and India. Those countries have proven that once they start to urbanize, it does translate into productive GDP per capita, and it and and, and it does work out well for the country. Um, and 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 you know, China's already proved that they just overdid it. Yeah, interesting. 
Interesting. So everybody can learn from that mistake. That's going to be the best best thing China ever did for the rest of Asia is prove people, here's how not to do it. If they had just done the same thing in a more judicious manner and not overbuilt two decades ahead, it would have been a different story. So, okay, my, my last question for you then, let's just shift to the market for a second. I feel like there is a, um, a transformation occurring in sentiment towards the market. Maybe I'm just hoping there is, but tr trending away from speculative uh, low fundamentals of the underlying asset of the equity price, uh, you know, definitely decoupling from the value of a share price and the value of the underlying asset in the market in terms of where capital is going. Um, I feel like I'm having more and more conversations with, you know, quote unquote, smart money that are trending back towards, you know, the raw materials industries, cash flowing companies, um, equities that generate yield and pay out dividends back to the commodity sector um, and, and hard goods. You know, would you, are you seeing anything similar? What are your thoughts on market sentiment trends, Harry? Well, well, yes, to a degree. I did. The problem with me is the secret to free market capitalism as George Gilder best said and said for many years, too bad he's, he's too old now to speak anymore, is failure, that it allows failure. Top-down governments build state-owned enterprises and then don't let them fail because they're their state-owned enterprises. So it's a double whammy. So the problem we're having here, yes, your businesses always get smarter and, and, and are better at finding new opportunities and all this stuff. The problem is we're not letting the losers go. All we need is a, that's what recessions are good for. Recessions quickly flush out the zombie companies, the companies that are only surviving by not paying their debt service. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so they're paying their bills, but they're not paying their debt service. So that shows they're in trouble, but they can do that for a while until they're forced to or forced into chapter seven or 11. So, so we need to flush out with this is the longest from 2009 now into 2022 before they started tightening for the first time was the longest growth period in history where we didn't have a recession and recessions are good i have to say this over and over again we, we would never be wealthy if we didn't have freaking recessions you don't get booms without bust you don't get inflation without deflation everything's the play of opposites you don't get men without women okay you have to have both for the economy to work okay so, so that's the problem. We're not allowing failure. We're not flushing out the failures because flushing out the failures makes more room for the companies that are doing the right things and seeing, oh, yeah, maybe this market's going, but now the, ba the baby boomers are buying this retirement or now the new young millennials are buying this that the baby boomers weren't. You know, there's new markets and, and there's new allies and there's new countries. You know, people in the United States, you know, should be realizing that Canada has a little more potential than the U.S. So if you're into exporting, don't just look at Asia, look at Canada, you know, and, and so on. So so free market needs failure when you say, oh, we want the successes, we want the innovation, we want all the good parts of free market. Capital. We just don't want the failure because that because that hurts jobs and companies. No, that's exactly what makes us healthy. And talk to a park ranger. Park rangers don't fight nine out of 10 fires in the forest because they clear out the dead wood and make the forest healthier. And they're mm. smart enough to know that they'll only fight a fire that threatens the whole forest. They're a lot smarter than economists. Everyday freaking park rangers 
understand something economists don't. Failure is essential to free market, not just the opportunity and the freedom to succeed without a lot of regulation and government blocking, but you have to let things fail when they fail and get out of the way and clear out the dead wood. Yeah, I love the analogy in the forest, actually. And and uh, any of my local viewers up in BC will be familiar with the pine beetle crisis that occurred like yeah. a decade ago, right? And it's a direct consequence of uh, of putting out forest forest fires, which historically clear out the old pine. Yeah, yeah. Right? My my forest my forest analogies don't do well in the Midwest. <laughs> well, up here we get it. In the United States, they don't they don't see forest. Yeah, you guys got forest. That's for we do. And as a consequence of putting out forest fires for 100 years, we let all of our pine forests grow unnaturally old, which made them more vulnerable to this infectious beetle called the pine beetle. And thing took off like a like a virus through our forest, this whole, you know, hectares of just red pine trees that are now like kindling, waiting to go up in smoke. Anyways, OK, Harry, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on. I want to point everybody to harrydent.com where they can sign up for you and Rodney's newsletter. Um, if you want more from Harry, that's the spot. Yeah, we have a free weekly newsletter. We have a paid newsletter. We have a free weekly newsletter to get to know us. And it's a good one. Rodney and I both talk to you every week. Okay. Okay. I love it. I will point people there, leave it in the show notes. And uh, until next time, I appreciate you, Harry. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Jay. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.